Welcome to Unobservable, the podcast where we answer the big questions by engaging current scientific, religious, and philosophical issues through the metaphysical lens. I am your host, Brent Constantine, and today is Thursday, the 1st of March, 2018. In this debut episode, we are going to kick things off by examining an article by Lawrence Krauss, a very popular atheistic physicist. Quick disclaimer, minds will be put at serious risk of being blown. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's jump right in. Lawrence Krauss writes in a 2006 Edge article, What is your dangerous idea? Lawrence Krauss says his dangerous idea is that the world may be fundamentally inexplicable. Now, what does this mean? When Lawrence Krauss says the world may be fundamentally inexplicable, what he is suggesting is that the universe may simply be a brute fact, that there is nothing about the why question of how did the universe get here, of why is the universe here. There's nothing about that that needs answering or even could be answered. Now, the article's pretty short, so it's not quite comprehensive, but we will read through a bit of it, and I'll dissect it as we go. And I've, I've made a few points um, to go along with what Lawrence Krauss has to say in regards to this dangerous idea. Now, I want to preface this by saying he's not the first to suggest an inexplicable universe. Um, in the past, it has been adopted that it is just simply metaphysically necessary, for example, that the universe simply couldn't not could, could have not existed is, is, is absurd. The universe must have to exist. Um, this article also does get into a little bit of the anthropic principle and some of the, the underlying ideas with that, and we'll, we'll touch on that too. But let me just read for you the first sentence here. Lawrence Krauss writes, Science has progressed for 400 years by ultimately explaining observed phenomena in terms of fundamental theories that are rigid. Even minor deviations from predicted behavior are not allowed by the theory, so that if such deviations are observed... These provide evidence that the theory must be modified, usually being replaced by a yet more comprehensive theory that fixes a wider range of phenomena. He writes, The ultimate goal of physics, as it is often described, is to have a theory of everything, in which all of the fundamental laws that describe nature can neatly be written down on the front of a t-shirt. However, with the recognition that the dominant energy in the universe resides in empty space, something that is so peculiar that it appears very difficult to understand within the context of any theoretical ideas we now possess, more physicists have been exploring the idea that perhaps physics is an environmental science, that the laws of physics we observe are merely accidents of our circumstances, and that an infinite number of different universes could exist with different laws of physics. Now, just start, st starting right there, uh, his opening paragraph, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. He's talking about the his historicity of science and, and, and how it's progressed and where we are now in that progression. And uh, I don't have any qualms with that. I, he's obviously a very intelligent individual who's well accomplished in the scientific field. I think he's probably more apt to comment on that specific area of this article than I am. However, the second the second paragraph is, is where Lawrence Krauss starts to deviate from his area of expertise into an area of expertise that I share in, which is 
metaphysics and, and philosophy, um, specifically near the end where he goes into a sentence about an infinite number of different universes which could exist with different laws of physics. The reason he starts to appeal to this will become clear as we read through the article, but I want to point out just right off the bat that that sentence in and of itself is already metaphysically flawed. I think what Lawrence Krauss is trying to say is that in in order to explain the physical laws we observe, um, what some people might call the fine-tuning argument, it would need a series of universes, a multiverse of sorts that would be infinite in number. And what he's really trying to say is that there would need to be a potentially infinite number of universes in order to accomplish this. And since we are here, that would require an actually infinite number of different universes with various sets of physical laws and, and, and you know, initial tuning conditions um, such that eventually we would get to this universe, which is tuned the way it is with the physical laws that it does have. Uh, but let's read on. He goes on to say, this is true even if there does exist some fundamental candidate mathematical physical theory. For example, as is currently in vogue in an idea related to string theory or M theory, perhaps the fundamental theory allows an infinite number of different ground state solutions, each of which describes a different possible universe with a consistent set of physical laws and physical dimensions. Again, uh, he's kind of feeding off of this metaphysical naivete that because the math is suggesting this and because it's possible then it, it might actually be true but what he's since he's not trained as a metaphysician he's failing to see that there is going to arise an issue because what's going to actually happen if we if we take this multiverse theory is we're going to eventually have to argue for an actually infinite number of of different possible worlds and these are useful fictions we use them in modal logic all the time for example planting guy uses it in the modal argument for a proof of god wherein if god is possible in some possible universe and he's possible in all possible universes therefore god is possible and actual in our actual universe but what he's really getting at here is they don't understand how the physical laws are the way that they are tuned in a way such that they are that they are therefore the math would suggest that in order to naturally arrive at this specific set of circumstances this specific tuning that it would require an actually infinite number of universes of parallel universes with with again various um consistent sets of physical laws and physical dimensions and so on and so forth. Again, that's just showing off some of the naivete of some of these new atheists who, who come out and they're well accomplished in their scientific field, but being well accomplished in, in a scientific field doesn't make you an expert or even someone who's, who's got a valid, you know, credentials for speaking on a, on a metaphysical subject. I mean, even by his own specialty, he's a he's a he's a physicist. He deals with natural law, natural physical law. Of course, his theories and things are going to have to appeal to a natural explanation. 
But sometimes a naturalistic explanation is not the best explanation. Sometimes a metaphysical explanation can shed some really, really important light into a subject. It's why we have fields such as philosophy of science, philosophy of history, and so on and so forth, philosophy of mathematics. Um, and we're not even into the meat of this argument, really. Uh, he, you know, we're about halfway through the through the article, which is pretty short in and of itself, but it's got some pretty important metaphysical um, content here. So. Um, naive as it is so we're going to continue reading and just i want you to keep that in in your mind as you listen because what's really going to be drawn out is is some of the absurdities of, of an actually infinite number of things that's going to be really important in, in dissecting what it is that lawrence krauss has to say and then maybe we'll comment on some of some of the other views that he holds in relation to this um so anyways he goes on to say in the article we're at uh, paragraph four here it might be that the only way to understand why the laws of nature we observe in our universe are the way they are is to understand that if they were any different, then life could not have arisen in our universe, and we would thus not be here to measure them today. So I want to I wanna go on, and then we'll, we'll, we'll walk back and touch on that some more. This is one version of the infamous anthropic principle. But it actually could be worse. It is equally likely that many different combinations of laws would allow life to form, and that it is a pure accident that the constants of nature result in the combinations we experience in our universe. Or it could be that the mathematical formalism is actually so complex so that the ground states of the theory, i.e. the set of possible states that might describe our universe, actually might not be determinable. Oh boy. So... He brings out an argument which I'm not sure if my listeners are familiar with, so I'll just kind of briefly state it. Um, he, he's talking here about something called the anthropic principle, which basically goes like this. Premise one, if life could not exist, no observation of the universe would be possible. Premise two, if no observation would be possible, the universe could not be known. Premise three, life does exist and the universe is known, conclusion therefore it is unsurprising that observation is possible now to state this in a little more fluid way the anthropic principle states that this is a necessity because if life were impossible no living entity would be there to observe it and thus would not be known that is it must be possible to observe some universe and hence the laws and constants of any such universe must accommodate that possibility so the idea there is we exist in a universe and we're observing the universe of course it's tuned such that we could exist and observe the universe it'd be absurd that we would exist in a universe that we couldn't exist in right that's just nonsensical but that's not really the argument when you get into examining the content of these initial you know fine-tuned variables the constants and quantities at the initial outset of, of the big bang what caused the big bang um mathematically speaking anyways what we're actually getting at it isn't we're not saying it's not obvious that we live in a universe that's tuned such that we could we're saying as theists that it's actually more surprising that we exist at all than not at all right leibniz famously said the most important question that it, you can ask is why is there anything at all it doesn't take away from 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 the fact that yes of course we you know leibniz knew for example that he lived in in a world that he could live in obviously he's as he was living in it 
Um, but what he was saying was, why are we here? Why is the world here? And then from, from that initial question of why is there anything at all, it leads you to question, yes, the universe is, is set so that we can live here, but why? Why are the initial constants and variables, the quantities that are set from, from the universe's first moment, why were they set the way that they were? And, and how did they get set that way? And, you know, I mean, it seems to me that the universe is fairly fine-tuned for life, given that we are here and we're a pretty complex form of life. I mean, to date, we've never observed any form of life that's like us. Um, which, you know, that leads into some other arguments about is humanity the center of the universe and all these things, which I don't necessarily hold to, but, uh, you know, it does center on us because we're the ones asking the question. We're the ones observing. So I just wanted to draw that out. Now, there's a few issues with this 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 concept of the anthropic principle that I, I just want to touch on a little bit, and then we'll go into some of some more of what he's actually approaching. Um but I just want to point out that the anthropic principle itself isn't that coherent. I mean, it's more of just a, a general statement than any sort of philosophical argument. I mean, you could say something like this, and I, I'm calling this anthropic fallacy. It's something that I've been working on in my own personal work as I go through graduate school and um, you know, and I'm eventually going to publish my theses, and this is some of the work I've been working on. I, I think think you'll appreciate it. So check it out. Anthropic fallacy. Premise one, observation of the universe is not necessary, and therefore it is surprising that life arose to observe the universe. Premise two, based on observation, it is nonetheless surprising that life has come into existence to observe the universe. Conclusion. The simple fact that if life were impossible, the universe could not be observed appears to miss the point that the question still remains to be asked, why does life exist such that life could be observers of the universe? And again, that anthropic fallacy is really just drawing out some of the, the arguments that Leibniz himself came up with many, many years ago. That's nothing new. You know, we philosophers, we've we've dealt with these topics for a long time. I think what's what's happening is these scientistic types who who want everything to be reductionistic and very naturalistic. Um, they don't have any metaphysical training, mostly because they regard the discipline as you know moot and null and and void and really just a a fruitless pursuit, uh, which is fine. That's their opinion. I whatever, but. They do show off some of their own naivete in that um, you know, they're, they're amateur. They're doing amateur philosophy without any sort of formal training to actually understand that even in like their initial arguments, there's some issues that come out almost right off the bat. I mean, it was pretty much apparent to me the first time I read this article that there's some deep incoherences in it. Not that he's wrong necessarily about what the math is suggesting, but because he's not taking what the math is suggesting and attaching it to what we know metaphysically to be true. Or at least more plausible than than not. Um, so I mean, just touching again on the on the anthropic principle. I don't know that I've said enough about it, um, just because I find it deeply disturbing how many atheist types uh, feel that this is such a strong refutation of theism. Um, I myself uh, was an atheist for a very long time, a very strong atheist. Uh, I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't know if there was a God or not. I was pretty sure there was not a God. I was in the affirmative, there is no God. 
Um, and I would take to attack, you know, the theistic types pretty heavily. And uh, <laughs> it's I speak from my own experience on how ignorant some of this stuff can be. Because um, it seems to me that the anthropic principle really points to a, a, a god in some way. Um, but... Let's let's just examine this a little bit more because I, I do find it pretty disturbing how, how much force they think this has. So, um, you know, the anthropic principle says that, of course, we exist in a universe wherein we can exist to observe the fact that we exist. Well, the fallacy in that is that it does not disprove the alternative to naturalistic philosophy, namely design. Of course, we exist in a universe finely tuned such that we might come to exist because the universe was designed such that we should come to exist and observe that fact. Thus, it logically follows that the anthropic principle is simply null in an atheistic context, because while it is true that life must exist to observe that it exists, this truth does absolutely nothing to address this, this meta-question of sorts, this, this question of why it still remains. Why does life exist at all? Why is it that the universe is conditional such that life exists at all? What I'm trying to say is this. Life is not necessary, yet life exists. So how? And why? Now, there's a bridge here where, where these two disciplines are going to come together and then they, they do split apart afterwards. And I'll, I don't know if we'll get to it all in this podcast, but maybe in part two we will. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start touching on it a little bit because this article really draws out some of these issues. Um, so when we're looking at the how and the why, think about it like this. Science can come to answer at least in part the how question, but the why question really can't ever be addressed or answered by science because by definition, science addresses the physical inquiry and not the metaphysical one. Let me say that again. Science addresses the physical inquiry and not the metaphysical one. In fact, science itself is restrained to the physical inquiry by virtue of its own inherent conditionals. Namely, what I'm trying to say is that science focuses on what is physically empirical. A question of the how function is well within that sphere. It's well within what science can do, what it can achieve, what it can answer. But the why function, it's well outside what science can ever achieve. And the reason, it, it, they're, they're on two different planes. And so I'm going to explain this a little bit. While the how function is a question of physical characteristics, the why function is a question of metaphysical characteristics. Let me say that one more time for you. While the how function is a question of the physical characteristics, the why function is a question of metaphysical characteristics. So there are a great, great many answers which science can and no doubt will deliver and already has, of course. But there are just as many which science itself isn't even able to approach. It's not even in the same sphere. For example, one of one of what I think is probably one of our strongest arguments as theists against atheism, the the concept of morality, right? What is objectively right and wrong? And so this is a very strong argument, and many, many scientists, many naturalists have debated theists on this, and they think they have some really, really good arguments. Sam Harris comes to mind, right? Sam Harris has a ton of literature written about this already, and I've seen his debates. I've dissected his debates elsewhere, um, and you know, they're just, they don't, they don't ring true at the end. They don't hold their value. They have no, no force behind them at the end, because what happens is it's a lot of dodging, and a lot of attempting to rationalize things that just are deeply incoherent. And when it's pointed out, for example, by individuals like William Lane Craig 
or John Lennox even this 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 attempt to to rationalize usually ends up in some sort of equivocation and really just becomes fallacious it's incoherent at the end because what they really want to do is have their cake and eat it too it's impossible so what i would say is given naturalism there simply is no good answer as to why it is true that regardless of any set of conjunctive propositions any set of relative beliefs it is always wrong to murder a young child or to rape a young girl it's always wrong it's plainly objectionably wrong to rape a young girl but this isn't what i say this is what their worldview was what the atheistic naturalistic worldview would would lead you to there simply isn't anything actually wrong with doing that there's nothing wrong with raping a young girl on naturalism of course they'll be outraged by it and i'm not saying these people go around raping other people that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is there's they believe that it is wrong but they do not have an objective grounding for why it is wrong i mean think about it like this lawrence krauss during a debate with william lane craig even brought up incest and he said given you know con consent and you know age requirements are met there's nothing objectively wrong to him on his worldview with a father and a daughter engaging in a consensual sexual relationship and i find that deeply disturbing obviously um, but at least I can applaud Lawrence Krauss for taking his worldview somewhat to its conclusion. I mean, he's obviously not taking it as far as somewhere like Nietzsche, but um, I think he's getting there a little bit. And really, honestly, I would applaud him more if he came out like Nietzsche and took it to the final conclusion. Because at least Nietzsche had the courage to face the worldview and, and say, you know what? This is where it gets us. But, I mean, really, the main argument that they're going to make on this is that it's a sociobiological process which, which forms the context for these things, and, and the environment is what, what caused the individual to, to exist and grow and mature in a way such that they, they adopt these, you know, evolutionarily beneficial, you know, morals and, and values. Um, I don't really think that that gives you a, a duty, per se, but I think at least they have a semi-argument for how you could come to believe something is wrong. I don't think that they have any sort of argument as to why it is objectively true. I mean, think about it like this. If the whole world had been con conquered by Nazi Germany, everybody believed and was brainwashed that the murder of Jews was perfectly, not only acceptable, but the right thing to do, it would still be wrong to round up millions of Jews and kill them. I'll say that one more time. If the whole world was convinced that the Nazis' delusional belief that it's okay to kill Jews in, in, in mass was okay, regardless, it would still be objectively wrong to do so. And I think that brings out the most incoherent part of, of this natural process that comes from something like the anthropic principle where we we attempt to reduce everything down to this natural level because realistically again this moral this moral question is another why question rather than the how sure society can tell us how to think about things it can tell us how to treat someone but that doesn't make what they're saying true that doesn't make what they're saying objectively right or wrong 
Now, of course, I'm not saying that most societies have bad rules. I think I think a lot of us would agree that, for example, in the U- United States, we have a pretty good set of coherent foundational principles, which we all follow. You know, we don't go around raping. We don't go around murdering. That's fine. It's fine that we've come to hold that because we were raised in a society like that. Although I would say I came to hold those beliefs more out of a, you know, a personal growth cycle wherein I became a theist and, and a Christian more specifically. And obviously that requires me to adhere to Christian doctrine such as the Ten Commandments and, and things like that. But I think these kind of arguments really display the problem with something like the anthropic principle, right? Because the moral argument, for example, is approaching, in his article, it would approach the how, but it wouldn't approach the why of its objectivity. And the same is really true of of the anthropic principle. I mean, it's it may be, although I think it's really just kind of like, more like a straw man. It's just not even really an argument. It's just stating a fact and then acting like it's an argument. It's really not an argument, but they act like it is. So we need to treat it like one and 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 find out why they're treating it that way and see if we can explain to them why it's wrong or or if it's right, see if we can adopt that view ourselves. I think it's a rational thing to do. Um, but yeah, so back back to his his article, um, drawing out the the anthropic principle and some of some of some of the things therein. Um, when he's talking about he's talking about these these quantities that are necessary for the universe to be as it is, right? And even 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 more broadly speaking, he's talking about these variables that that we have observed, something like Newton's Newton's laws and and uh, general relativity, special relativity, things of that sort. Um, why is it that these things are the way they are that we can understand them and explain them um, you know using math for example right the uh, the applicability applicability of mathematics is another area that's just so so mind-boggling um, and he's he's approaching that a little bit here um, but really the issue that I see is when he's taking this 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 naturalistic approach because that's his job of course he's going to examine these natural arguments. Um, most popular one to avoid a creator as the explanation of the universe is to simply say, well, it's possible that there's a, a, a world ensemble of sorts, which basically what it's doing, it's multiplying probabilistic resources for these physicians, uh, sorry, excuse me, these physicists, and <clears throat> then the metaphysician must look at that and say, is is this really plausible? Is it really metaphysically possible that an infinite number of worlds exist such that chance could produce this specific universe? Because what we're really talking about here is did someone or, or, or an agent, did some agent create the universe? Did some agent design the universe? Did some agent fine-tune the universe? Or... Did it happen by chance, by probability? And I think, this is my personal opinion, as a metaphysician and, and someone who studied these arguments, I'm obviously writing about them now, have a lot to say, of course. Uh, I don't think it's very possible. I mean, for the longest time when I was an atheist, this was what I believed. I believed in theory pretty hardcore, um, so much so that my first, uh, my first um, college experience was 
what I was pursuing was was mathematics, high level mathematics, um, and computer science. Those were those were my two majors for the same program. Um, and I have a deep sense that those are questions and and disciplines that need answers and need need people to go into. But when we look at the possibility of an infinite number of universes existing, I think it's absurd. If we look back at, at, at metaphysical history, if we look back at philosophical history, we'll come to undoubtedly some of the same people that are always cited by you know, others such as William Lane Craig. Um, but Ghazali, he spent an enormous amount of effort trying to explain to people why it was that an actual infinite number of things couldn't be. And of course, his his point was to prove the finitude of the past, which is a whole nother topic we would definitely do a podcast on because that's another area of work I'm doing. But that was what he was focused on. But tangentially, I think he's really given us a strong case in a lot of other areas, it really in the fine-tuning argument. He's really given us some strong, strong metaphysical objections to, you know, an explanation such as imp theory, you know, being appealed to in order to kind of explain away the fine-tuning because I don't think it I mean if you listen to what he says he says here he says let me let me reread in in his exact words let me pull it out here so he says let me see here However, with the recognition that the dominant energy in the universe resides in empty space, more physicists have been exploring the idea that perhaps physics is an environmental science, that the laws of physics we observe are merely accidents of our circumstances, and that an infinite number of different universes could exist with different laws of physics. It might be that the only way to understand why the laws of nature we observe in their universe are the way they are, right, what he's saying there is, why they are tuned and are as complex as the way they are is to understand that if they were any different then life could not have arisen in our own universe and then we wouldn't be here to measure them of course now he, he goes on to kind of touch on that a little bit um a little bit more even i mean right here he's even saying or it could be that the mathematical formalism is actually so complex Right, it's so incomprehensibly complex that the ground states of a theory, the pos i.e. the set of possible states that might actually describe our universe, might not even be determinable, right? So what he's saying there is it's so complex he's not even sure that they can have a theory that determines these things. Right, so on the one hand it's so complex we can hardly explain it, on the other hand it's of course it's not surprising right because we're here seems logically metaphysically absurd to appeal to that and i, I want to revisit too um, i haven't even read his last paragraph yet for you guys which we will be wrapping up here soon but he does say and i quote one more time the theory allows an infinite number an infinite number of different ground state solutions all with different possible universe uh, and different sets of physical laws of physical dimensions. Now, let's spend a minute here and talk about an infinite number of things. 
let's just think about this for a second. And this is really going to show you what I'm talking about when I, when I say metaphysical naivete, right? There's no philosophical training here. There's no philosophical discipline in what they're doing. So it's going to be an issue, you know, as we engage this work throughout the life of this podcast and we engage these different um, physicists and, and really high level individuals who are incredibly intelligent, um, their philosophical you know, naivete is really going to show. So let's think about the infinity question for an example. Let's see here. How could I put this? So when we talk about infinities, these are useful fictions. They serve as a fictional limit in order for us to articulate some thought, right? They, they're, they're useful for, for thought experiments. But when we say infinity, what, what do we mean? I mean, can you put a number on that? How much is an infinity? How many things would take in it? Would would it take to make an infin, an, an infinite number of things? Consider this: if you're walking up a staircase, and it's an infinite staircase, every time you take a step, you add one. How long would you be walking? How many minutes would you have been taking steps? Right, it's absurd, right? Because it, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around. But what he's really talking about, what we really mean when we say in infinite, like, for example, as a Christian, we will be in heaven with the Lord and worship will be singing from our lips for eternity, right? For infinity. What that is actually meaning, or like when we say we're immortal and we'll never die, what we mean is, you know, our, our spiritual selves, of course, what we mean is that we're potentially infinite, that we'll always have one more thing such that there's never a limit and end to this but it's not actually infinite because how many years is it is in an infinite number of years how many days is that how many events is that right because as you add these steps for example as you take a step and you add a minute all you're going to wind up with is an enormously large number because you'll always be able to add one more to that number. You'll always be able to add one more. You'll never end up at the infinity sign as your number, right? Because in, in, infinity is just a useful fiction. It's just a way to talk about numbers and time and events. It doesn't actually mean anything in that sense. What I'm saying is when we say it would require an infinite number of universes to talk about and describe all of the different fine-tuned details of our universe which are just incomprehensibly fine-tuned i mean there's just uh, even if it were only four or five of these variables which it's not it's an enormous amount of variables and that's not even considering things like you know human free will right choices that are made and does that affect this at all but when we talk about these these cosmic quantities for example even if there are only four or five of them, for them to arrive at the specific quantities they are today, let alone for them to have been set the way they were at the initial outset of the Big Bang, I mean, it's just absurd. And so for them to try to explain this naturalistically, they have to appeal to this this greater pool of probability, right? This 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 resource that would give them infinite number of attempts at getting our our universe it's, it's as if they sat down at a roulette table and they were able to we we spin once we 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 spin it and we win and then they spin it 
they can't win and so they keep spinning it until they do win that's kind of I don't know that's it's not a very great example but it does kind of illustrate what I'm talking about where they need more chances for these random events to these random universes that are bursting into existence in the multiverse of the world ensemble they need infinite number of them to arrive at what we are now at where we now live where I am recording this podcast today on the 1st of March the problem with that is there can't be an actually infinite number of universes. Sure, there could be an argument that there's a potential number of universes just popping into existence. But when you bring in factors such as, you know, split decisions, when you bring in, I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's absurd to think that there's even, even on a potentially infinite number of universes in a world ensemble first, a, there's no reason to think there is a world ensemble. We have zero evidence for that. There's not even any good metaphysical arguments for that today. I mean, most of it really revolves around stuff like the anthropic principle, which are pretty weak. But but even more so, I, I think that the metaphysical absurdity of appealing to a potentially infinite number of universes, I mean, where do those all come from? Where did all that matter come from? And even if you were able to appeal to a multiverse, it really doesn't answer the question because it just kicks it back one step, right? If there's a multiverse, then we have the same problem. I'm sure there's an initial set of quantities and variables that burst the multiverse into existence and the multiverse is also inexplicable and therefore they would say it just is that way. We would say like it's just a brute fact, but we would say of course it's not a brute fact. There still exists a why question of why is the multiverse or world ensemble there. And actually, I think you've just really kicked it up a notch because it would just take a more powerful explanation to explain an infinite number of universes inside this multiverse. And that's not even to say, even if there were a multiverse and there were an, a potentially infinite number of these universes inside the multiverse, we still might not have wound up on the universe that we are experiencing right now, such that they might need to even appeal one more time to a, a an ensemble of world ensembles of universes, a multiverse of multiverses of universes. I mean, it's just absurd. So, and that's really where it gets you. I mean, it gets you at this deep, deep, fallacious kind of kickback it's a regression um which would obviously be an infinite regression um something thomas aquinas uh also approached and uh you know aquinas he 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 also came to the same conclusion there can't be an infinite regression you'll never end up at an expl explanation there's no explanatory power in that it's just <laughs> they always accuse theists of the god of the gaps but really what they're appealing to is a science of the gaps You know, and I have a few more things to say about it. So let's let's just let me get back to my notes here, and 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 let's just go through this a little bit more. So, given this, the distinctions we've just made, given all of what we've just talked about, it seems pretty clear that one needs to toss off these restrictions of of the physical world and seek out some of the freedoms that the metaphysical can provide um, in order to actually adequately approach and address this question. And that question is that life exists at all. Why is it that life exists at all? So fr let's frame that to, to, to more closely match this discussion we've been having. 
why is it that life should have come to exist at all, right? Why is it that life should have come to exist at all? See, the anthropic principle, it's asking, how is it that life came to exist at all? And it answers that it is simply unsurprising that life came to exist because life does exist, and that must mean that the universe is tuned in a way such that the, the, the universe provides a place for us to exist. It's not that surprising. And of course, scientific endeavors have pretty much confirmed that the universe is tuned in this way. That's why we're having this discussion. That's why he's trying to appeal to an inexplicable universe or, or possibly a multiverse. Um, but there's a, a serious fallacy there, and we've been kind of talking about it this whole time. But let me let me see if I can phrase this in a more rigid fashion for you, because I know I kind of have been ranting a little bit. Um, why is it that the universe should exist in such a way that life should come to exist? If the universe did not exist such that life should exist, then does it follow that the universe itself should not exist? The principle at hand here is equivocating the universe's existence with life's existence. It's clearly untrue that life is necessary, and it's equally and probably vastly more untrue that the universe is necessary. It's to say if it is true that life could not have existed, and it is true that the universe itself could not have existed, but given that both do exist, one should surely ask why. In fact, because it is true that the life and, and, and that life and the universe could both have not existed, yet both do, I would argue that it's even more surprising that we find ourselves here today. Um, yeah, life is not necessary, yet life exists, so how and why? I think those are the, really the, the questions, and all of these kind of articles are really doing are, are trying to circumvent that question. They're not really answering that question. Even if they answered all these physical laws, the idea that you can appeal to some sort of world ensemble with an actually infinite number of different universes that vary such that we could eventually exist how we do today is just absurd. It's just nonsensical. I mean, <laughs> I could phrase it in any number of ways. I can get really, really confusing if you'd like because it does get pretty much absolutely nonsensical. So let me say it like this. We were talking about that kickback, that infinite regression. So let's say it like this. Even granting some sort of multiverse, the issue would only be kickback a notch. And one would find oneself still with the question of why a multiverse might exist such that universes should come to form within the multiverse wherein life could come to observe that the multiverse is tuned such that universes are tuned such that life should exist at all. Let's keep going. Even supposing further that an ensemble of multiverses should be tuned in a way such that a multiverse of universes should exist wherein life might come to exist to observe that an ensemble of multiverses of universes is tuned thusly. It's truly metaphysical nonsense. It's just absolutely nonsensical. Yeah, it's just, it's totally outlandish. So let's finish his article and see what we have to say. In this case, the end of fundamental theoretical physics, i.e. the search for fundamental microphysical laws, there will still be lots of work for physicists who try to understand the host of complex phenomena occurring at a variety of larger scales. 
might occur not via theory, but rather with the recognition that all so-called fundamental theories that might describe nature would be purely phenomenological. That is, they would be derivable from observational, excuse me, observational phenomena, but would not reflect any underlying grand mathematical structure of the universe. That would allow a basic understanding of why the universe is the way it is. I think more accurately put is that would allow a basic understanding of how the universe is the way it is. I don't think it would really address the why question because you would still be left with why are we here to observe these phenomena in the first place? Or even more broadly, why are there these phenomena at all? And even more broadly, where did these phenomena come from? I mean, let's just look at the, the uncaused causer, for example. It's an old philosophical argument for the Christian theist, right? Um, basically, it's been formulated in, in a bunch of different ways. Uh, I like to use William Lane Craig's argument because I personally take on an A theory of time, though I am developing a B theory argument, a, a, a B theory form of this argument myself. But his Kalam cosmological argument, which, by the way, is derived from Ghazali as well, says this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. That cause is what we would refer to as God, a general God, not necessarily the Christian God, although I think there are arguments that bring it down from a general deism or general theism into Christianity. But what that argument is, is talking about is, it's basically, I mean, if you want to equate it mathematically, it's kind of like Newtonian physics, right? An object has to be acted on by an outside force in order to move or stop moving. It's just going to run out its its course one way or the other. It's going to stay stationary if it's never pushed into motion, right? That's why sometimes God is called the unmoved mover. Um, and of course, there's a ton of arguments we could go on about why it is that God himself is not subject to these kind of inquiries, right? Because... It, you know, even Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, his whole core principle is, his whole core of his argument is that even given some grand explanation of all these things and whatever, it's still going to remain to ask, why did God exist? Who created God? Where does God exist? Et cetera, et cetera, which is obviously, again, metaphysically naive. Um, God is non-temporal. He's immaterial. He's non-spatial. Of course, he doesn't exist at any given time or place. Of course, he wasn't created in any time or place. In fact, if he were, he wouldn't be God. That would be the exact indefinition of God. It's just the exact opposite of what we would mean by God. So I think Lawrence Krauss has written a pretty interesting article here. It's very short. There's not a lot of content in the article itself. But those few sentences have some serious metaphysical implications that we really just need to pay attention to because I may not be the most coherent person in explaining these things, and you'll have to have to bear with me as I get you know get into the groove of this, but at least I can see the absurdity of saying something like an infinite number of different ground state solutions would would explain how we got to where we are. Right? He's appealing to a multiverse, and I mean, there's just this whole arc article is really about circumventing any sort of or trying to circumvent any sort of actual argument for design or fine tuning. Um, via the anthropic principle and probability and chance. It's really not a very good argument. And Lawrence Krauss is pretty guilty of that. I've seen a lot of his debates and most of his debates 
really are centering on what what I would th- like kind of call an ad hominem attack on on the character of God, specifically the Christian God, because that's where I've spent most of my focus. Obviously, I'm a I'm a biblical scholar by training, um, so of course that's that's been a huge interest to me on what people have to say on that. But I also think you know he's he 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 does spend a lot of time trying to explain away the fine tuning. Which, right, he's a physicist and he is well, well credentialed to speak on the physical aspects of that, right? He's he's qualified to speak on the cos- cosmological, like, variables and things. That's, that's, that's all fine and dandy. I think where he goes awry, and it would be the same as if I was up there trying to do some intense physics, right? I, I'm not a physicist, so I'm really null and incapable of doing that in any sort of substantial way Um, likewise he's not a a philosopher he's not a metaphysician and he's definitely not a biblical scholar so there's not a lot he can really say that's substantial in those arguments now they try to draw their their different conclusions from their own area of expertise which is fine i think it's good that they should question what is the implications of the science they're doing i think that's good I think they need to pay a little more attention with a little bit more respect to some of the objections to those arguments because even he himself says it's just a theory and I would grant that even God in these kind of arguments is just a theory. We're never certain about these things, but I think given what I've laid out here, it's far, far more plausible to think that, you know, design is true, that fine tuning is true. I mean even if we apply simple principles such as like Occam's razor, right? Like why would we multiply explanations to an infinity in order to explain the universe that we exist in when there's a pretty good argument to be made for intelligent design and fine tuning by the hand of a, of a creator. I think that's far, far simpler and there's far more plausible given the argumentation. So I hope you have enjoyed this uh, podcast. It's been our, our debut episode of unobservable and I hope you stick around, um, as we work out the kinks and we get the format down it'll get a lot smoother Uh, i appreciate you i love all of you thank you and go on and answer these big questions